This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. When we talk of somewhere far away, it's an Australian idiom to say it's out the back of Burke. A couple of months ago, I did a road trip and went there actually to the back of Burke. My expectations were rocked and my history improved. Today's author knows what I know about Burke. Welcome, Nicole Alexander. Hi, Jan. Thank you for having me. Burke is a thousand kilometres from the Pacific Ocean. So when I was there, I was surprised that the courthouse handled maritime disputes. Maritime. (laughs) How come? Okay, so at one point, Burke was the largest inland port for wool in the world. So we have these huge numbers, thousands of wool bales being fed into the port of Burke and then being shipped down the Murray-Darling system into South Australia to be sold at market. Quite extraordinary. And the government took one look at those bales leaving the state and knew that they had to put a stop to it. So previously, there'd been no interest in constructing railways out into the interior. But by 1885, we have a railway line that's open between Sydney and Burke. And at the same time, the government actually offers wool graziers an enticement, subsidised freight to move their wool off the paddle steamers, put them on the train and ship them for sale in Sydney to market. Well, one of the problems through 1895 and 1902 was a drought. And of course, World War I started too. But there was also a flood the Great Flood. When was that? Yes, so the Great Flood of 1890 came down the Barwon and Darling Rivers and it was really a catastrophic event. So as I mentioned, Burke was the largest inland port for wool at that point. So the flood did serious damage to the town itself, even though residents tried to build a huge levee to protect it. The flood itself made international news as well as national news that signifies the importance of the port at the time. And we have figures like nearly half a million sheep being lost during the flood. We have accounts of people in trees for days existing on raw sheep meat and pots of cold tea until the floodwaters receded. So we have a major ongoing impact after the flood goes through and recedes as well. Well, we'll get on to a statement later about how the, that 1890 flood washed away wealth. But there was another problem, and this one we don't often associate with rivers, bushrangers. Now, Nicole Alexander, how do you hold up a boat? (laughs) Well, it was more, here we have to allow a little bit of author imagination here. I read one account of a paddle steamer being held up and it was closer towards the New South Wales, South Australian border. So with the story set in the Western Division of New South Wales, I just sort of moved those facts a little bit further north. That's not to say it didn't happen on a regular basis because paddle steamers, not only were they carrying things such as wool and copper, foodstuffs and mail, but they also carried a lot of alcohol a lot of kegs of beer and rum and brandy. So the bush rangers and actually just folk in general were pretty keen to see those paddle steamers come in in those remoter settlements. But of course, we still had around the turn of the century, the grog shanties happening when the rest of the area was meant to be dry. Stations, for example, grog wasn't allowed, meant to be on them for many of, of the workers there. So the sly grog shanties 
they were also looking for supplies. So there was always a little bit of to and fro happening between some of the steamers and those inland trying to get their hands on those supplies. That's a lot of facts about a river, but Nicole Alexander's book is a fiction about a family. The book is called The Last Station, and it's about the generations who lived there. So who were the Dalhunties? So the Dalhunties were once extremely wealthy graziers. So we're talking absolute wealth and power. But when we meet them in 1909 in The Last Station, they've literally hit rock bottom, you know, almost as poor as church mice. So for me as a writer, I was really interested in exploring the trajectory of a family that goes from that absolute wealth and power to poverty in a span of only 20 years, and then looking at each individual member and actually seeing how they feel about their situation. So we have the parents who remember the glory days on the station when there are over 80 people employed. And then we have the children who now find themselves you know, helping to grow vegetables when they are next to a major wool port. So things have gone from wonderful, you know, wonderful days to absolute rack and ruin. Well, Ben, now Ben Delahunty was third generation. He loved the beauty of the country and he'd married Rachel and they were both from moneyed families. But as you say, they were living very poorly now. And Ben blamed, quote, floods, rabbit plagues, depression, shearer strikes and drought onto the Dalhunties' lost fortune. But perhaps it was more Ben. Poor Ben, you know, patriarch of the family, born into wealth, always had everything done for him from a very early age, very domineering father who probably didn't give him um, enough support or trust his ability At the same time, Ben is a very quirky individual. We're talking about a man who actually prefers to dress in his ancestors' clothing. He likes lying down in the dirt and chatting to his tomatoes. He likes having, you know, personal conversations with his chickens. So he's a very quirky individual. And because of that, sometimes he doesn't make the best decisions regarding the management of the property. So we have Julian, Laura and Meg, but there's a new sadness that's come to this family, and this is Davy. Yes, so young Davy is the fourth member of the Dahunty family children, and he has actually passed away. As the youngest child, of course, he's dearly loved, and his loss is really felt by all the family, but in very, very different ways. The parents find it very hard to get over Davy's loss his death causes a rift between the parents as well and then in return they seem to sort of almost turn away from their own remaining children oh yes so there's the sadness involving Davy the hardship of what they're eating and Nicole Alexander honestly how to cook a cockatoo and make it edible but not only the food there's the comic relief we have from Frank and Henrietta. Well, Frank is a gentleman who has appeared on this station about 20 years earlier, and supposedly he's been wandering the desert for a good decade. He's terribly eccentric. He's an Englishman. He has wonderful stories. His background changes on a whim, and his best friend really is his camel, Henrietta, who he literally shares a cottage with. 
It's been two years since Captain Ashby came down the river on the paddle steamer Lady Matilda. He collects the last of the wool clip and some of Rachel's handiwork to sell. But on board, there is a piano, a lady and a telegram. And the decisions made here by Ben, his wife Rachel and son Julian bring into action and the finality of the last station. So the piano, just tell us a little about why the piano? In those households that could afford one, a piano, even an organ, some type of musical instrument was really important because that was the main form of entertainment. Now, the Dalhunties have had a piano in the past, but they actually lost it during the Great Flood. It was sort of, you know, floated out. So when Captain Ashby arrives on his paddle steamer with a piano in tow and a woman playing it, Ben just falls in love with the idea of music and elegance and going back to those days when music filled the house. So we're back to those glory days once again in Ben's imagination. So he's very keen to purchase it. So the piano itself, I guess, is a, it's a symbol of what could have been for Ben and what he still thinks is achievable. And he's also very keen to almost make amends for the death of his son, Davy, and to a certain extent, keep his wife, Rachel, happy as well. But of course, Julian realises that he spent the last of the money on this piano, but there's something that catches Julian's eye. That's the lady. Living on a remote station for a young man with only his mother and sisters as female companions and very little opportunity to see another woman, the arrival of Miss Carlisle at Dalhunty Station really does cause quite a stir from Julian's point of view. So the closest he's come to other females is on those brief visits to Burke once a year and also looking at Italian women pictures and sculptures of them in art books. <laughs> yes, so he does fantasise about Odie and Carlisle, but you've given her a very special skill. Yes, I read some very interesting accounts about home decoration in outback areas. Pioneering accounts show women actually studying taxidermy through manuals and then making up their own makeshift kits based on pictures of taxidermy kits in mail-order catalogues, etc., and then trying their hand at skinning, stuffing and mounting specimens, usually birds from what I've read. But, you know, I can just imagine the smelly disasters they had trying to learn how to cure skins and that type of stuff and using borax and salt and devising their own methods of, of curing these things. So Miss Odine Carlisle, that's, that's her um, major interest is taxidermy and there's a telegram yes there is a telegram that arrives that announces a problem within Rachel's family which necessitates her need to travel all the way down to Sydney to visit a family member who's quite ill and the family is shocked because their mother has never been anywhere ever before and even though there's been previous telegrams over the years saying please come and visit Rachel never has this time, she is very, very quick to answer the call, pack her bags and leave. And it really does leave the family, the remaining family, the three children and Rachel's husband, Ben, floundering in her absence. There's a quote, why doesn't a person look back? Even a dog looks back. 
So the mother did not turn around. And she writes these long letters about eating oysters and scones and clotted cream. Rachel, the mother, is a complicated character. But when she does return, the family are in for a bigger shock. Yes, so she brings home a young man by the name of Ethan Harris, unannounced, with no consultation given to the family at all. Ethan comes from the other side of the tracks, shall we say. He could be classed initially as an opportunist. So he's really not welcomed into the Dahanti family. The children see him as if the mothers brought him back to replace their lost brother, Davy. And the father, Ben, he's so keen to keep everybody happy, particularly his wife, that he overcompensates in his treatment of Ethan. And that in turn then upsets the rest of the family. Ethan's arrival throws the Dahantis into chaos. Mr Fraser, the property owner next door, has been buying more and more of Dalhunty Station. Well, this Mr Fraser also organises the arrest of Captain Ashby and with other dramatic writing we have Julian, Ethan and Odine being chased through the bush by a group of violent men led by gentleman Charles Wesley and the very scary Alex Flannery. Now, this is a quote from the book. Out here, it's more natural for a man to be blown away in a storm, rusted, struck by lightning, white-anted, or swept into the darling by the next flood than be confronted by bushrangers. But it's the very resourceful Meg. I feel she was a character you thoroughly enjoyed writing. I did. Look, when I started writing Meg, I thought, no, I could make her stronger. I could make her feistier. Yes, she's only 13 years of age. But I thought, no, she's grown up in the bush. She's done the hard yards. I know what it's like to be a kid growing up on a rural property. So, yes, let's give her a lot of gumption and a lot of go. So she becomes a very feisty individual. And, yes, she was very fun to write. Um, And it's nice to be able to have characters a novel that allows you to eject some humour into the narrative because it really does, I think, make the story more memorable but also break up some of the, you know, the dramatic points in the work. And, of course, it gives that added dimension to character as well, I think. There was so much in this book. The Dalhunty family have only their prestigious name after generations of pastoral wealth. Their downturn is also reflected in the demise of the riverboat trade on the Darling, written with detailed depictions of rural life, action and humour in The Last Station by Nicole Alexander. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much, Jen. That was great. Yeah, oh, really yeah, enjoyed the, the questions. Oh, thank you. And now it's David's turn. We inherit many things in our lives, not just property, but also the legacy of the past. Robert Lukens examines such a multifaceted inheritance in his latest novel, Loveland. So, Robert, welcome to 3CR. Oh, thanks so much for having me, David. It's a pleasure. May inherits a property from her grandmother, Casey. The location is intriguing, the name of the town, Loveland, but also the lake that we find at this location. In many ways, the lake becomes a metaphor for relationships in general. Yeah, it's interesting the way significances tend to attach themselves to things as opposed to the sort of starting out with that 
with any kind of uh, grand metaphor or analogy with these things. Um, we, we, we have this, this central lake in this Nebraskan town of Loveland. The lake itself is almost like the plug hole of this town. Everything gets washed down and swirls down into this place, the good and the bad. And it's this, this lake is, is rich with stories and significance for this town. And in other hands, it would be a lake that provided replenishment and, and cleansing for this character. And in this story, the lake is a, is a toxic place. It also serves as a metaphor for relationships in general. It's an oxbow lake. We would probably call it a billabong here. So it's mm. cut off and isolated. And so like a relationship, it's got the potential to replenish and revitalise. But at the same time, as with relationships, it can become toxic. The formation of this lake was a, a log jam on the on the Mississippi River in the late nineteenth century that that overflowed and came into this valley and filled it up and it, it does feel a little like the, that kind of rushing of love that rushing of of first romance and it comes to fill this place and if it's not replenished by the river over time they do they become stagnant and they become places where where there's there's no oxygen and there's there's things slowly start to decay in there and I suppose that's if um we've got our metaphor hat on that's a pretty um it's a pretty handy one for a relationship. We go on from there because we have May who's picked up this inheritance from Casey, but their lives almost seem to be in parallel, although they're generations apart. May's escaping from a relationship with Patrick at toxic relationship, just like the lake's toxic. Casey has had her relationship with Moses, an intriguing name, but both are unsatisfactory. Yeah, I suppose I'm interested in well in the idea of this kind of almost a subconscious inheritance. I think we, we have literal inheritances of, of May inheriting this house um, on the lake from Casey that she wasn't aware of, and that, but then we have as we go along, she she essentially learns, and we learn these these subconscious inheritances she has through her family, and these are things we, good and bad, we pick up through our family. And it's not a question of blame, and it's just a question of we pick up these things as we go along, and maybe we do start to shadow our family's ways of problem solving and coping with things, and maybe there is this sense that we do form the shadows of the previous generations, and that's not to say we can't act independently, but it's um, much like the Oxbow Lake is filled with water and then it can't escape. It's, you know, our, as children, we're, we're this valley that gets filled with the water of our grandparents and our parents. And to strike out a new tributary is, is a difficult th but not impossible thing. This also affects Patrick and Moses in many ways because they're sort of inheriting a male chauvinism in the way they treat their respective partners. Yeah. The calibration of where the men sit in this story was something that was, it was incredibly central in the, in the writing of this for me. Um, and I think initially I wanted to really interrogate this huge concept of, of male control. Is, is this something that all men carry around buried within themselves? Is this a capacity that all men hide from themselves. Is this in me? And I initially wrote this not as a novel, it was just an elongated thought exercise, really trying to interrogate this, this huge, almost unanswerable idea. Um, so initially the, the male characters in these stories had, had much deeper backstories and we, we saw so much more of their upbringing and their family relationships 
um, and their, their lives. And, and ultimately, after rewriting this novel, I found but no justification. And so ultimately, the men in this story exist through their actions and their culpability. But ultimately, it's a story of the experiences of these women and how they exist. As I said, the parallels between May and Casey, they seem to be linked to nature. There's uh, that scene with May in the rainforest when she finds mm. she's pregnant. You're linking women to this sort of natural life force. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you picked that up. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily something I'm linking purely to the women, but that idea of nature kind of forcing its way into this story, the way that the nature comes in over the horizon or they it's 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 always kind of impinging on the story um and there is just that idea of in those moments of being able to tap into some force that's when we feel like we don't have a great great life force we can tap into this pre-existing force and that's a that's an, a powerful thing but it can also be a terrifying thing and we have we have may in this story as a child going out to swim um, in this stone bowl waterfall um, out the back of the school, which is where, what I, where I used to escape to when I was a child. Um, and going under that torrent, going under that waterfall, I feel like it's like getting smashed in a wave. You feel almost as if you're being reborn in that moment because you're touching on this great power. You're almost, you're almost drowning, but it, you, you come up feeling more alive than ever. So I think there's just this idea that storms, water, rain, lakes, these things are this, this untouchable force that we, we all feel, but we can't quite tap into. And it's a, it's a place of renewal, but it's also can be a terrifying thing. There's also a supernatural sort of sense there as well because May comes into touch with her deceased grandmother, in many ways, Casey, on the boat, and she's almost floating, May, that is, floating above the boat, and it's, it's almost like she's connected to the experiences yeah. of her grandmother. I'm incredibly interested in the sort of permeability between reality and our imagination. And I think in a times of safe and calm, that, that distinction is much clearer. But in, in, in moments of crisis, that brick wall between our imagination and, and what seems like reality can be a very porous thing. But it's something to do with coping. When the real world is intolerable, we have to reshape our imagining of the world. We have May in this, in this story and Casey in her timeline reaching these moments of where where life is intolerable. And in those moments, the mind can do amazing things to try and cope with the situation. And so there's this moment where their fingertips touch in the story. And I try not to draw too many conclusions about what that means and where that sits in terms of reality or, or their imagination. Um, these are those moments, I suppose, it's the, the moments in their lives of where things are at their most heightened. And in that moment, the place inside the mind is as real as anything we can touch. May meets up with Jean, an old friend of her grandmother's, and this is where the notion of story in many ways comes out. Mm. Jean relates her past, which allows May to start putting things in perspective. But as Jean is telling her story, she's trying to encourage May to tell hers, and May keeps saying, I don't have a story to tell, mm. and yet this whole novel is May's story. Yeah. And that raises the whole significance of story in the novel because you then bring in this notion of fiction. You make references to Paradise Lost, 
bleak house, as if there's an echo of story and other people's stories permeating this story. I think it comes from a couple of places. I think at, at its base level, Nebraska is a place that I have been absolutely fixated on since I was 10 years old. And I know every place has their stories, but Nebraska seems abundantly rich with stories. Every single dusty little town, every single street has this, has some incredible origin myth. It's a place where under every stone there seems to be an incredible narrative waiting to get out. And I think that forced its way into the story. But also I think it is, especially in moments of, of crisis or in moments of, of hardship, I think our own stories and being aware of our own stories is something incredibly powerful. You may have nothing else. You may have nothing else materially, but you own your own story. And, and the idea of who you tell that story to and who you share it with is something incredibly powerful. Uh, and I think there's something in May that she doesn't want to reveal that story. It's almost as if she she feels this this kind of powerful shame about the shape her life has taken your own story is something you can you hold very close to the inside of yourself and who you share that with it's not something taken lightly and and so yeah we have in this story may almost like bouncing between all these stories she goes on these drives with jean and jean's telling her these stories about um, so Jean's an older character. She's in her 70s. She's telling her all about her life. And we're reading these roadside guides about all these towns. And she's finding fragments of novels. She's picking up a dollar novel down at the charity shop. She finds the the last page of The Great Gatsby washed up on the shore of this lake. There's There's almost this motif of these fragments of stories just bouncing around. You also refer as a form of ending, one of the endings, because there's sort of more than one in some ways, <laughs> yeah. by a reference to Voltaire's Candide, that the resolution is simply to tend the garden. But yeah. the other ending then is May finally is able to establish her independence in terms of her relationship with Patrick, who's been back in Australia but has come over. And she does so by actually relying on, uh, ironically, Patrick's predictability. Yeah. I suppose there's also just this idea of the incredible privilege of having someone to lean on, having someone to be able to step in and, and be there for you in those critical moments. And that's a, that's a privileged position and that's a luxurious position. But if you're not familiar with having that support, it's something that's very hard to open yourself up to. And I think a lot of the journey for me, I suppose, is around this idea of being able to trust in someone else and then just taking a sideswipe onto the, the Voltaire idea. It ultimately ends with this idea of these characters having gone through the most incredible trials in life. They ultimately decide that tending the garden, a day's work, is the ultimate way of finding the the best of all possible worlds and i remember thinking as a child it feels like someone tricking us whether that's our boss or whether that's the financial systems or god or whatever it is this idea that the best you can hope for is to um have an honest day's work and i remember as a child wondering if that's enough and i think that's kind of this central question that i bounce around in my head all my life really is uh what is it ultimately that's going to make you feel like you are independent because obviously tending the garden you may feel independent you may feel free and that sweat on your brow but you're a worker you're tied to these things and i think may kind of wrestles with this as someone who has 
has essentially had to be in, in a position of being the working poor her entire life. She is tired. I suppose it's whether she's going to find pride in that or a sense of herself in that. And um, I'm not saying I've answered that question, but it's one I ask myself quite often. To find out how May is able to gain her independence, to find out how May, in fact, does resolve the challenges Casey had in the past, to find out how Robert Lucan's Loveland ends, one is actually going to have to purchase and read <laughs> the novel. So as I said, Loveland by Robert Lucan's, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So Robert, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.